for the morning. Um, it's Genesis chapter 31, and I'll be reading um, verses 17 through 24. And if I could ask you guys to stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 31, verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. You may be seated. Good morning, Reliance. I, I get the privilege of preaching this morning, and it's an honor and it's a blessing to do it. Uh, as I was watching Lisa and Brandon just a minute ago, I was thinking of my getting interviewed by Lisa to be here, and man, it was tough. Uh, she's a tough cookie. Jacob was tough. Lisa was tough. Lisa was tough. Um, would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we approach your word, I ask that you give us a clarity of thought as we're trying to discern what it is you'd have for us in this text. Communicate clearly so that we can have undistracted hearts and minds. Work in a mighty way so that we see your faithfulness and your blessing towards us despite our sinful hearts. We know that we've fallen short of your standards and laws and we need Jesus Christ for our righteousness and our salvation. Help us to see how you designed the hardships in our lives for your good. And we thank you for fulfilling your promises to your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is a fun text. Um, we're going to wrap up quite a bit of what happens with Jacob and Laban this week. And what I think is amazing is that we'll get there but. The whole story of, of Jacob begins with the rolling of a stone. Or I guess I should say with Jacob and Laban. When he first meets Laban, he's rolling away a stone from a well, and we'll talk about that. But it also seems to be the end of their relationship too. God made Jacob, the son of Isaac, quite prosperous. Despite Laban's attempts to trick him from having a flock of his own, Jacob had taken all of Laban's flocks. Jacob, the trickster, has been tricked by Laban long enough. Laban's sons aren't happy about it. And Jacob begins to realize that he isn't favored in Laban's eyes like he once was. In Genesis 29, we read this. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my bone, or you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. When we see what happens 20 years later, the tensions are pretty high. 
And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. And even Rachel and Leah, we saw, they agree. They see how they've been mistreated and deceived by Laban and how God provided for Jacob despite this. They said, are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. He has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. The relationship is thin and strained because of Jacob's prosperity and Laban's jealousy. But God sees Jacob's affliction and will see his covenant blessing fulfilled through him. So he commands Jacob to return to the land of his fathers. So they go. Jacob and his family don't even say goodbye. They just up and depart after Laban leaves to shear his sheep. Genesis 31, 17 and 18. Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. I could say Paddan Aram a million times. This just sounds like bananagram or something. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. There's a lot, a lot of wordplay going on here. Another way of reading this passage is kind of like this. Rachel stole her father's household gods and Jacob stole the heart of Laban the Aramean. They're both stealing something. What's the heart of Laban? It's probably his daughters and his grandchildren. We'll get to the household gods thing later, but there's some more wordplay. We're not seeing Laban as just Laban anymore. He's Laban the Aramean. Um, usually I think of something like that. There's, something's changed in the relationship. Aramean in Hebrew rhymes with the same word, which means to deceive. Does Jacob know anything about deception? <laughs> yes, yes, he does know something about deception. Has Laban been a deceiver? Like, yes, come on, absolutely. In what way? I'm sure if we asked Jacob and Leah and Rachel, they could probably think of a time when Laban deceived them. How about this one? And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob and Laban were made for each other. <laughs> Jacob's trickery with his father, Isaac, and his brother Esau was matched by Laban the Aramean's deception. And Jacob is going to trust in the God of Abraham and see his commitment to his promises through this. Because Laban is also about to receive what he's been dealing out the last 20 years. Everything that he thought he had control over, he's going to lose. We're beginning to also see the separation of a people. Laban is no longer merely Laban, right? He's Laban the Aramean. A people led by Laban, a man who's known to deceive, Laban the Aramean. And then we also have a people led by Jacob, who was once known to deceive but he's beginning to grow in his righteousness. He's beginning to trust in God. 
after shearing the sheep, Laban comes home to see that Jacob, Jacob's family, and all that Jacob acquired legitimately from Laban, they've all left. If that happened to me, I'd probably be pretty upset. (laughs) And he was. Laban's upset. But it's beyond that. He's willing to go to war over this. And I'll show you what I mean. Genesis 31, 22 through 25 says this. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled. That's That's a scary term. We flee when we're trying to run away from something. He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. I took, yeah, they're not highlighted in your Bible. I did that, okay, or underlined or whatever. But we just read the terms fled, pursued, overtook, and pitched tents. That sounds like military terms. These are military terms that we're talking about. Laban is ready to go to war. He's angry. He wants his his daughters, his grandchildren, and his stuff, and he doesn't want Jacob to leave. If God hadn't intervened through the dream that he gave to Laban, warning him not to speak good or bad, blood would probably have been spilled that day. But he did. God intervened, and he doesn't allow his covenant promises to be thwarted by anybody. He restrains Laban from doing evil because our God restrains sin for his purposes. So what does a deceiver do at this point? Right? He's just had God, the God of this man he's trying to pursue, talk to him, tell him, don't do anything good or bad. He does what he does best. He waits till the next day to make Jacob sweat it out in the meantime. That's a really good tactic. I know what anxiety is like, but like, I can't imagine having like pitchforks and torches like over there and me trying to sleep that night and then just, yeah, it wouldn't, I wouldn't sleep. I'd be talking to God a lot that night. And Jacob's anticipating violence, right? But what does he receive instead? He receives what a deceiver deals out best. He receives words, more words. Laban just can't drop it. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Seriously? Captives of the sword. Jacob's now accused of kidnapping. This is great. This is going really well. It's a total lie. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? It's pretty hard to believe you, Laban, with the pitchforks. Okay, and do you even play the tambourine? I don't know. Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you've done foolishly. Whose sons and daughters are these? These aren't Laban's sons and daughters. He's posturing as a victim and a hurt father. He still considers his daughters and grandchildren as his property. He doesn't acknowledge them as Jacob's wives and children. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your fathers spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. He's not supposed to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. Just don't open your mouth, man. You just can't help it. 
Now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? So Laban's been stretching the truth this whole time. He accuses Jacob of kidnapping Leah and Rachel and assumes they'll never leave him. And he's masking his ill intent towards Jacob and kind of playing the victim in front of his people and Jacob's people. And Jacob just explains why he leaves Laban so quickly. He doesn't even justify it. He just says this. Because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Why would he think that? Something about Laban has changed. Maybe Jacob just realizes the kind of man that Laban really was at this point. Maybe Laban really hasn't changed. But the relationship's changed. He's no longer the welcoming man who warmly embraced Jacob that we read about earlier. He's vindictive. He's controlling. And he's dangerous. And Laban's means of arrival is only proving Jacob to be right. But God who called Jacob back to his father's land sees what's happening. And he's still in control. But Laban, however, is not in a good spot now. He needs vindication, and he might just get it. Even though God told Laban not to speak, good or evil, the fact of the matter was that the household gods went missing. And it just so happens that they went missing when Jacob left. He mentions how he won't do harm to Jacob, and it seems that he's doing it because he respects Jacob's God. But he believes that Jacob doesn't respect his household gods, seeing as he stole them, and is going to snatch the opportunity to be seen in the right. He's accusing him of theft now on top of kidnapping, and he expects to find the idols in the camp so he can be vindicated and seen in the right. But Jacob, Jacob does this. In his ignorance, he offers a vow. He says, anyone, don't, don't talk, Jacob. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. No. In the presence of her kinsmen, point out, what I have that is yours, and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. It's like watching a car crash. Um, it's like anything I say in this moment is not going to matter because all the windows are up, and you're like trying to yell it out, and you're like, stop! But really all that comes out is like, it's like ah, that's, that's like all I can say at this point because it's like just don't say that thing, man. But God sees what's happening in this whole time, and he's not blind or ignorant to any of it. His plans aren't going to be thwarted. So he begins the search. Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. He went out of Leah's and entered Rachel's. He starts his search in Jacob's tent. Why? He clearly suspects Jacob. What I think is really sad is whose tent he goes to next. He goes to Leah's tent. Who does he think he is, right? He's like, I got them. I got this figured out. I think it's funny because Jacob was once a man touched and searched by his own father when he's trying to posture as Esau. You guys remember that? And now he's having all of his properties searched by Laban. He continues the search. He goes to Bilhah and Zilpah's tent. Then he goes back out through Leah's tent. He goes back out through Leah's tent again before he even suspects Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. 
And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Quick, you know, aside, household gods, what a fun thing to be looking for. They're made out of gold. They're like an expensive metal. They're probably used either for like divination. You guys remember how Laban at one point says, I divined that something happened. Could be that. Could be used for uh, a means of getting a greater inheritance, which if that's the case, that's hilarious because Jacob wanted a great inheritance, didn't he? The point, regardless, though, is this. Laban can't imagine Rachel sitting on these. That she would deceive him. He's like master deceiver, right? Even worse, that she would defile his gods with such an impurity as was the way of women, right? That that would be sacrilege in the eyes of the ancient Mesopotamians. He never really suspected Rachel anyway, and Rachel saw her act either, or both, as deception towards her father and contempt for his gods. Perhaps she learned it from the best. Whether she was telling the truth or not, and whether she intended to communicate this or not, she is despising where she came from by treating these household gods as worthless and unclean, like filthy rags. So what kind of God gets God-napped? Because I'm thinking it's probably not that powerful of a God to be able to be stolen, right? So anyway, quick aside for that, that was one of the thoughts I was thinking about. It's like, how do you, like what kind of God allows that to happen? Then also, what kind of God allows himself to get into that position? Yeah, I'm going to get desecrated today. Like, I just don't, it just isn't, the answer is it's no God, right? No God allows himself to have that would not not allow himself to have that happen to him. Laban never found what she was going to use against Jacob of dealing wrongly with him because God prevented the idols from being found. And we know that happened because they were never found. (laughs) Even though there was still sin in the camp with Rachel's theft, Jacob's protected. And God seems to be restraining this sin, or at least the consequences of it in this instance, by not directing Laban towards the false gods. It could have been much worse for Jacob, but God doesn't allow that because of his covenant faithfulness to what he wants for Jacob and his people. Our God can restrain sin and its consequences. That doesn't mean he does every time, but he can. That nothing was found in Jacob's tent is proof of Jacob's innocence. Having all his properties searched through falsifies Laban's claims. Jacob's about to let loose now 20 years of anger, deceit, mistreatment against Laban the Aramean. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. I've never been berated before. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. Hey, let's have a court hearing right here and now, Laban. Your people and my people, why don't you put all your evidence up front and let's just see who's right. That's what he's saying. His hardships as a shepherd are also announced. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. It was torn by wild beasts. I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. 
There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. He's been a good shepherd. He's been faithful to his flock and to Laban by taking the burden of loss and hardship. And Laban's flocks prospered in all of this because of God's blessing on Jacob. He says, these 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 for your two daughters and six for your flock. And you've changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Laban is so depraved and so low that God had to intervene. He puts an end to Laban's revenge by humiliating him in front of his people and the people of Jacob. Because he's not only just willing to rob Jacob, he's willing to rob his daughters and his grandchildren right in front of everyone else. But God intervened in Laban's life maybe more than we realize too. God's giving... God is protecting Laban from the wrath that he should deserve by setting this scenario up this way. And Jacob's giving the credit to God for everything that's happened. He's experienced that faithfulness. And he sees that God's now beginning to give him a people amidst all the possessions that he's had. Laban's sputtering at this point. He's living in a fantasy and is in denial Verse 43, then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? These are hollow words from a hollow man. He's speaking out of a delusion, especially after this confrontation. I doubt anybody believes him. I don't. So he's got one last thing that he can do. His last-ditch effort is doing something for himself. It's making a covenant with Jacob. Here's a man who's got his military pursuit right behind him, right? He turns quickly, and now all of a sudden we're making a a non-aggression covenant. I'm not going to fight you and you're not going to fight me. Why is he doing this? Because he knows that he can't win. He can't save face with his military. The only way that he can do that is this way. But why should Jacob do it? He's got God on his side. He doesn't need to make a covenant with Laban and he's seen in the right. What purpose does this covenant serve Jacob? And why would he trust Laban? <laughs> I mean, it's not like Laban's exactly played fair, right? Ten years, or you've changed, changed my wages ten times, twenty years I've worked for you. It's not been fair. He does it for this reason. God is about to create a new people with this, and this is that distinctive moment where we see that separation. So Jacob already knows, I'm not going to trust you for anything. Um, I asked for Rachel, you gave me Leah. <laughs> Leah, remember that? Uh, yes, I would like Rachel, please. Okay, I'll work another seven years for you. And then also, I would like to have my own flock. Oh, you took it. 
I guess God's going to have to bless me by taking yours. Cutting a covenant with Laban seems like he'd be cut out, but he's not. Laban's angry. This is the only thing he can do to save face. So we read in verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. And I would like to take this moment and rebuke all the Christian cards that have been made over the years over this verse, um, or like embroidered pillows or whatever. You guys have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, it's fine. I'll explain. So there are these Christmas cards in the KJV that I would always see as a kid, and it would be like this. The Lord watch, this is so good, I love this so much. The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent from one another. Isn't that sweet? I'll read it again. The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent from one another. I just love that. That's so sweet. Um, That's totally not what he's saying at all. Um, But it's just great. It's really warm. Uh, (laughs) It's like we're all pals, you know, like I can't wait to see you again or like, you know. Maybe Katie sends it to me and puts it in my stocking. We don't, do I have a, anyway, anyway. Um, Not a great translation, folks. A better way of saying this would be more like this. Um, Because I don't trust you at all. (laughs) I don't trust you in my sight and I don't trust you out of my sight. May God watch your every move. (laughs) Right? That's not the same thing, is it? That one doesn't give me the warm feelies quite like the other one. They're done. This relationship is done. There's nowhere else to go. They're at a point where they're saying, I don't even want to watch you, and may God hold you accountable for what you do. And we still know that Jacob doesn't need the treaty, right? He knows it. God's already protected him from Laban, but it makes it official that Jacob and his people are their own people. You only make a covenant between two separate parties. Laban and Jacob are not in the same party anymore. Two different people. This is part of God's providence in establishing Jacob, as we'll see later, as Israel, the people of Israel. God has brought him out of Laban's fields with his own people, possessions promised by God through his covenant with Abraham, and now he's ready to go back to his father's land. If we go way back, I think I want to bookend it like this, because I see God doing this. Jacob's first interaction with Laban was that rolling of the stone from the well's mouth to water his flock. It's in Genesis 29, verse 10. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, all that God had done to bring him there, even as he was fleeing the consequences of his own trickery. 
It was so obvious that God was at work in that passage. He found family at his lowest point of fleeing from his brother. He met his bride-to-be and was embraced and brought into the fold of this man. And that was a sweet thing, but it's completely changed. It's completely changed. Chapter 31, verse 46, he says, another kind of gathering stones, he says, to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and they made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Jacob's only response to Laban and that whole covenant making is two words, gather stones, and he's not even doing it. He's telling his people to do it. Where he was once eager to move a stone and begin his life with Rachel and serve Laban for her, he just orders the stones to be gathered. Jacob's life with Laban begins with rolling a stone from a well and ends with rolling stones to solidify them as wholly different people. Verse 50, Laban continues, if you oppress my daughters, he's not doing that, guys, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? The heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. We have two pillars, we have two gods, we have two lands, and we have two peoples now. This covenant has been made and it's solidified. When Laban swears by the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, Jacob swears by the fear of Isaac, as he's known his God to be. He sees God working amidst his life even in this moment. He offers sacrifices to God as a sign of his righteousness that's continuing to grow and he places his trust in him. He eats, he sleeps, he leaves. This is an awesome work of God, to create a people from another people. Amidst all of the sin between Laban and Jacob and Rachel, we see how he's creating Israel. And he hasn't said that yet. We haven't seen him be called Israel yet, but we will soon. But this is all He takes a poor man who was enslaved by another man and exploited and he makes him rich. And Jacob is still growing in his righteousness towards the Lord. It's a shadow of what life in Christ is for us too. We're called to be a people of God, and we know that all things work together for his purpose. Turn with me to Matthew 10, verse 34. I think about this passage a lot. Maybe it's just how I've grown up, but I think about who I value Jesus is speaking. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother 
and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jacob is leaving because God called him to leave. And it's dividing this household of Laban's. That can happen to us too when we follow the Lord. And it's a hard and it's a scary thing, but we can also remember what Paul writes in Romans 8. Verse 28, Paul writes this. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many believed brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As a believer, we can see how God has used us in all of the ways of our lives. The consequences of our sin in order to, um, to be prepared in order to serve others while they struggle with similar sin. Maybe our household was divided. But God uses all of those things for his purposes, for his glory. The same is true with what happened with Jacob. How is it that amidst our sin and the sin around us that God can continue to do that? It's because he's faithful and he holds true to his promises. As we leave this morning, as we go home, I would, I would love to encourage you guys, do this. Like, grab somebody you don't know and steal them for your dinner table today. <laughs> and then I want you guys to share stories about how God has been faithful to you. What has he done for you? What has he done for me? They don't have to be the most grand story, but they just need to be true because our God is true. Just pray with me. Father, you are good. You are faithful. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Thank you, Father, so much for restraining the sin in our lives. We could be worse than we are, but it's by your divine hand that you've brought us to the place we are, to a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for how you've prepared us to this point. Help us to serve one another and to care well for the body as you've cared so well for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.